2: From KQBD in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Former Mayor Michael Tubbs joins us today on Forum. Stockton, California's first black and youngest ever mayor has written a memoir, The Deeper, The Roots. And like its title, it's about the women and the city that raised him and the experiences that shaped him, of being poor and having an incarcerated father, of his political rise and unexpected re-election loss, and the survivor's guilt of losing a family member to murder. Growing up, Tubbs' mother would warn against revealing too much about his life, but now he's found strength in it. Michael Tubbs joins us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. When Michael Tubbs was still a student at Stanford, he ran for Stockton City Council and won. In 2016, at just 26 years old, he became Stockton's youngest mayor and first Black mayor. His failed re-election bid in 2020 surprised and confused many. But Tubbs has reflected on that and much, much more in a new memoir, The Deeper the Roots, about his hometown, the people who raised him, and who he is now at 31 years old. Michael Tubbs, welcome back to Forum.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: I looked back and saw that the last time I interviewed you was in 2017. I think it was six months after your mayoral win. And certainly a lot has happened since then. But even just this year, I heard you moved to L.A. and that you are now a father of two.
3: Life has been moving (laughs) since 2017. So, yes, have two beautiful children now. I have a book baby now. Um, And yes, me and my wife moved to L.A. in March.
2: I'm so sorry. For some reason, my connection just went out, but I'm not sure if um, it did for our listeners. But if you wouldn't mind, uh, Michael, do you mind just repeating what you you said in terms of life has been moving and then I kind of lost you after that?
3: Yeah, no, I I just said life's been moving since 2017. And I'm just so blessed. I have two beautiful children. Um, My wife and I moved to L.A., We have this book baby that just came out Tuesday, The Deeper of the Roots. So all good things.
2: What made you move to Los Angeles?
3: After the election, my wife and I actually thought we were going to D.C. I had accepted the job in the White House. But while going Mm -hmm. through vetting and sort of waiting for a start date, we recognized that we actually wanted to be in California. And I recognized that I really wanted to continue to work. I started in Stockton, but thinking about doing it more of a statewide level because, California leads the nation and it's hard to get the nation to move, but you could get California to move and then the nation eventually um, catches up. So we looked in California and housing in California is so crazy. And we realized that Los Angeles was actually cheaper in housing than the Bay area and almost as same price or parity with Sacramento in some respects. And because LA has such a thriving arts community um, my wife and I are both very interested in storytelling and narrative. L.A. is the capital of that. And L.A. also has a strong Black community. And also I have a lot of deep relationships with the political leadership here. It just felt like a great place to sort of start a new chapter, um, to 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 spread our wings a little bit and and, and to raise our children.
2: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I also wondered if just the distance from Stockton, L.A. is a very different place from Stockton, if that gave you the distance that that you might not have realized you'd needed to really think about your life in Stockton.
3: Absolutely because I think sort of it's um, it's far enough where I can't get roped into the petty minute day-to-day of like local governance and even now although I still get at least a call or a text from someone <laughs> in elected office or city government or in or a nonprofit I don't feel, I, I'm not there, so I can't respond. I, I actually can't do anything, right? And I think that's so freeing because even in the couple of months after the election, I was still in Stockton, I'm still working in downtown Stockton and people still were treating me as if I was the mayor, it would come to me with their complaints, come and, and tell me to do things. And I was like, "Well, you guys, I'm happy to do similar work, but I'm no longer the mayor and being away has given me the space to reflect on what I enjoyed about being mayor. But also space to like enjoy not being mayor, which I am greatly enjoying.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, and you reflected on a lot all the way to to basically the three really important women in your life that have shaped you since you were born, your mom, your auntie, your nana. And I was wondering if you could actually talk about each of them because your book really opens by focusing on them and, and what you feel like you got from each of them.
3: I've been so blessed um, to be raised by just phenomenal visionary, in many respects, ordinary Black women who really were determined that myself and my sibling and my cousins would be successful, that we wouldn't fall through the cracks, that, 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 that we would sort of do better than they did. And my mom, I mean, so much has been written about how she was single and how she was young, but she's also just the most determined person I've met in my life. Like she owns two houses now. Like both of her sons went to college. Like like, like she, she's, um, she's just always been about progress and always been an example of how you don't take no for an answer and how you just work hard and you work hard and you're, and you're determined and you know, and you have a strong sense of self and you know who you are. And that's something that's really stuck with me. And then my aunt, she is very outgoing, very gregarious. I'm um, very kind, I'm um, very loving, and was always just thinking about, okay, you like books, let's give you more books. You, you like this, let's get you more of that. Um, you like basketball, I'll be team mom. Um, and she just was always sort of a, a great compliment to my mother. And I think a lot of the way I socialize and a lot of the way I make friends and, and kind of that part of me really, I think I get from from her and seeing how she engages and builds real community and has really deep relationships across race, age, ideological spectrum. And she's been like that forever.
2: Yeah. You called your mom, she daddy. So I got the sense that um, maybe your, your aunt was the more effusive and outwardly emotional loving one.
3: (laughs) A hundred percent, a million percent. (laughs) And then my grandmother is just the matriarch and she has always been like a steadfast sort of rock And she really provided the spiritual underpinning and the spiritual grounding and the ethos of service. I remember, and i talk about this in the book, going to the convalescent home with her every month, um, talking to those who were in the convalescent homes, bringing them food, singing songs, reading scriptures, feeding the homeless, feeding the hungry. Even when I was mayor, every time I talked to her, her one question was like, what are you doing about the homeless (laughs) decision? And um, I think I didn't even realize sort of, service was a choice because it was so infused in what it meant to grow up. And she was a case manager for Cal Work. So randomly, when I was mayor and council member, I would meet with people who said, oh my gosh, Miss Nicholson is your grandmother. She yes. helped me transition from welfare. And my grandma's not like a big social media person. She's not a big sort of out there and loud person. She's very really quiet and behind the scenes. But She was always leading groups at church, whether it's Bible studies, whether it's different ministries, and she's always been in service to people. And and it's funny because her office was where I did a lot of my work as a council member, where a lot of the book takes place. And I had no idea she was laying the roots for that work in the time she was just letting me get in the house because I was locked out all the time. I had no idea what she was doing with her job. And and then when I became mayor, I was like, oh my gosh, grandma, like your work, like this was super important. She's like yeah
2: it's my job (laughs) yeah your description of each of them is really lovely and in many ways the book feels like a tribute to them there was something though that i was really interested in and you describe them as a, a wall of mothers but you you also say they closed ranks to ensure that i would be imprisoned by their love and their fierce desire for my story to end differently than michael anthony tubbs which is your father I was really struck by the choice of your word imprisoned. And I was wondering what was behind that?
3: Yeah, I, I think um, in, in my attempt to be an author, I, I tried to use words and imagery that would provide parallelism. Because um, I think, so when we think of the carceral state and we think of incarceration, you don't think of love. Like it's, it's about punishment. It's about rep- retribution. It's about trauma. Um, It's about sort of marginalization and erasure. But I feel in the same way that that's confining. I had the blessing of being confined by real love. Like they just formed a wall that surrounded me. I wasn't perfect, but it was always rooted in love. It was always rooted in we have great expectations for you. And And I couldn't escape it. It was just, it was ubiquitous.
2: You described your mom sort of mantra in some ways as saying, you know, don't tell, don't tell nobody our business basically. And I wondered sometimes if that was both freeing, but also a, a bit hard or a bit imprisoning in some ways.
3: Yeah. Well, I never understood, like when she would say it, I was like, well, I didn't even understood what it meant. I never really interrogated it because I wasn't in a hurry to tell people my dad was in jail either, right? Like I, like, I never, I didn't know why that even needed to be said. But then as I got older, it wasn't until actually I won the Alex Walker Essay Contest that I realized that there was there was some, something unique about my story. There was something powerful about my story. Because for me, it wasn't a novelty, it was my life. And I was like, well, of course I'm going to go to a great school. Of course I'm going to do business in school. But it didn't occur to me that because of my background and because of sort of being in poverty and some of the um, father incarcerated, being from Stockton, et cetera, that people had already written off the script for me. So when she would tell me that, I was like, well, yeah, like, I don't want anyone to know either. Like, why, like, why does it matter? And then as I got older, I realized, no, there's such great power and in, in shouting from the rooftops about kind of your story and where you come from and your experiences. Cause I think that's how we learn from each other. And I think in my case, it points to what's wrong with our society and also what works.
2: I loved sort of the way you interrogated both sides of that. So you did talk about how by sharing some of those things, you you would experience the soft bigotry of low expectations, as you put it. But also at the same time, you wrote something along the lines of how you didn't want to be another stereotypical sob story, almost to benefit from that in some ways. Do you feel like you've resolved that at this point? Or is it still something you grapple with a bit?
3: Um, I, I think I resolved it because I recognize now that it's not about pity, it's not about victimization, it's about real ownership. It's about real ownership and clarity about the impacts of policy on people's lives. And in the same way sort of other stories are are mainstreamed and viewed as important in terms of more traditional families or more traditional experiences, I feel like there's so many people, unfortunately, in our state, in particular, but also in our country who grow up in poverty, and that's a story that needs to be told, but not from a path path pathologizing, if that's a word, um, <laughs> a way or 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 a, a way of victimizing or a way of like this weird fetish around struggle and trauma. Yes, but yes. really, about this is an experience that so many people in California have, and this is why it it, it it needs to change.
2: We're talking with Michael Tubbs, and we'll have more with him after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking to former Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs about his new memoir, The Deeper the Roots, and we'll get into it more in just a moment. Uh, But I have just learned that in the last few minutes, we have some breaking news related to the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. I understand that the jury, Michael Tubbs, has found Rittenhouse, who's 18 years old, not guilty on all counts in the shooting of three men, two fatally, during unrest in August of of 2020. I'm wondering if you wanted to comment on that, if you have a reaction to that.
3: Yeah, I I think as sort of um, human beings, but also as Americans, we should continually be in a state of outrage and deep mourning when our justice system illustrates, once again, that does not work the same for everyone. You've had people who vandalized property. You have people who have, who broke windows, who received a harsher punishment than the men who murdered two people for exercising their constitutional right to protest against state violence. And this is another example in many respects of state violence. The fact that our justice system has repudiated and said that the taking of two lives is not worthy of any punishment, is not worthy of any consequence, and it sends a chilling message, particularly in the time when we see white supremacy rising, when we see members of Congress tweeting videos about killing their colleagues, when we had an attempted coup on our nation that was the first breach of the Capitol since 1812, like literally even in the Civil War, the Capitol wasn't breached. I think it's in that context, we should all be thinking about what are we doing to make this country one that we deserve to live in? Because I argue we we deserve to live in a country with real justice, where if you murder somebody for protesting that you're held accountable for that.
2: NPR will have more coverage of this throughout the day. uh, And I invite listeners to stay tuned in for that. And I appreciate you, Michael Tubbs, responding on the spot. In listening to your answer, I was wondering if you were thinking about your dad when you were talking about the ways that our justice system treats different people differently. Your father is serving uh, a 25 years to life sentence. Does he come to mind when you think about verdicts like this?
3: Him, um, he didn't kill anybody, nonviolent offenders who didn't kill like. We have a whole prison system. We have people in jail right now who are in jail, not because they're guilty necessarily, but because they can't can't pay bail. Um, And and we just know, and and people get so uncomfortable talking about it, but I think it's much uncomfortable to live it, that we have a country with two separate justice systems, with two separate legal systems, and that's not a democracy. And that's not justice, and it absolutely has to change. It's unacceptable and deeply, deeply troubling. And I think the whole nation, should be in a state of mourning. This is terrible.
2: We're talking with Michael Tubbs. His new memoir is The Deeper the Roots. Tubbs first ran for office as a Stanford student and became Stockton's youngest and first black mayor in 2016 at the age of 26. We're talking about the people who shaped him. And I'd like to invite you our listeners to join the conversation. What are your questions for Michael Tubbs? Does his story of being raised and mentored by powerful forces, powerful women resonate with you? Or or have you grappled with some of the things that we talked about in the beginning about how much to share of your own personal story and and what you've learned from grappling with that process if it's been a struggle? You can call us at 866-733-6786 with your thoughts or questions. 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. Michael, one of the other things that I, I did when I listened back to a little bit of our conversation in 2016, I, I sensed then that you were a bit reluctant to talk about your dad. But in your book, you really do write about him and the role that his imprisonment has played in your life and the, and the way that it has shaped you. And I was wondering if you could talk about the moment that you visited him when you were a high school student and you asked him about why he was in prison. What did he tell you then?
3: Yeah, well, visiting prison was just such a harrowing experience. As to your point, I talk about it um, in the book, but I'm claustrophobic and just felt very constraining, very, um, the guards look at you with more suspicion than the judge looked at Rittenhouse who again actually killed somebody and you're just there visiting a a loved one. Um, And it's just, just terrible. But in the conversation with him, It was fascinating because he just gave a structural analysis of why he was in prison and sort of what society had projected for me based off his imprisonment, based off my mom's age, based on their income, based on my race. And I remember my response to that being a complete rejection of that notion and really embracing this idea of pulling myself up by my bootstraps and proving everyone wrong. But given sort of the superhuman effort it took um, to do all that, now as a 31-year-old, I recognize that my father wasn't entirely right, but he also wasn't entirely wrong. Mm -hmm. That there are structural forces at play that create outcomes. That it's not just choices. Because you can make the, if Rittenhouse, for example, talk about choices. If Rittenhouse was a young Black teen with an AK-47 and had Um, murdered two people um, at a Proud Boy rally, I think we can all imagine the verdict would be different, Um, despite the choice being the same as Rittenhouse being a white teenager who murdered two people at a Black Lives Matter rally, right? So so I think sort of, as I've gotten older and been involved in policy, that, that, that animates my desire to be in the policy space, is to really create a society that, is equal. that doesn't control for equal outcomes, but make sure there's equal consequences for equal actions and that we have equitable inputs to, to rectify um, some of the um, inequities we, we see. So that was an incredibly long answer, but that visit was formative um, for two reasons. I think one at the time, it gave me further motivation to succeed. And I think now as a former mayor, as a father myself, It also causes me to think about, wow, what can we do so that my father's grim prognosis isn't correct at all? Like, I don't want to live in a country where you can look at someone's race, where you can look at someone's family, you can look at someone's income and make logical predictions about where they'll end up. So I think that's just inherently against what the American experiment is supposed to be about.
2: Do you think though that process of um, it sounds like you've reconciled it now in many ways and in terms of the direction that you want to take in terms of the change you want to make but do you feel like that conversation where your dad was talking about the reason him being there was because the system was stacked against him and your mom and your aunt and grandmother constantly telling you that you have agency that you can pull yourself up do you feel like those polls Th- they formed a large part of, of what you were struggling with as you were growing up as a high school student at that point and then on into college.
3: Yes, yes, absolutely. And I'm thankful for both of those polls because as I went to college and I started reading and learning about structuralism and learning about sort of policy, I recognize that in many respects, my family was right. but They also weren't completely right. And that's why in the book, we have a chapter called Upset the Setup. And it's really about interrogating this idea and talking about the tensions between structure and agency and really uh, being nuanced in terms of understanding that, no, folks need to have agency to have hope. And that's the only way structure changes. It's not going to change by itself. And structure isn't, final and it doesn't have the last word and it isn't destiny, but also on the flip side, understanding that agency is not enough. And if the idea of society is to give some people insurmountable barriers and other people none, and then blame those with the barriers for not reaching as high with those who none and telling them to uh, use agency, that's also ludicrous. And that's also ridiculous. And really understanding that we live in a complex world where we have to hold both these ideas as true.
2: We're talking with Michael Tubbs about his eventful life. At six, his father was sentenced to a near life term in prison. At 22, Tubbs was elected to Stockton City Council while still a student at Stanford and at 26 became the city's youngest and first black mayor. Along the way, he founded programs to help young people get to college. He piloted universal basic income and more. And you are invited to join the conversation at 866-733-6786 with your questions for Michael Tubbs or your reactions to what he's saying. 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org. Post thoughts on Twitter or Facebook. Let me go to caller Steve in... Berkeley. Hi, Steve, join us.
4: Hi, hi, thanks for having me. It was a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm aware of Mr. Tubbs through the universal uh, Universal income experiment that he uh, officiated or started in Stockton. And I I was curious, there's some little legislation in Congress now about reparations for slavery uh, as a way to kind of uh equalize some of this the economic disparity and i wondered what his
3: opinion was about that
2: Hmm. steve thanks michael
3: yeah i thank you for the question steve i think sort of just based off historical precedent based off sort of notions of justice and and based on actually documented fact around sort of what 400 years of free labor (laughs) will do for an economy will do for industries, will do for families, and, and also seeing how those impacts aren't just in the past, but manifest in the future. And then thinking about sort of the decades of policies from the GI Bill, like redlining, et cetera, that further concentrated harm in economic depravity and disparity, that there has to be a conversation about sort of repairing what was done and, and making it right. And doing so will actually make our country that much stronger, and make our country that much more vibrant. So I think the question is, how do you do that? Like, it's it, the 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 harm is so vast, and, and, and has comp- and wealth compounds as does inequality. So how do we measure? How do we do it? And so I think that's from just should we do it? And then on the flip side, it's also a political question. Like, is our political system even able to to to, to deliver something like that? And I say that as an optimist, but also as someone who is worried that we won't get the child tax credit through this Building Back Better Act, uh, which is something for everyone, who is worried that we can't respond to the existential crisis of climate change, which affects all of us. So I I definitely support sort of finding a way to make our country stronger by repairing some of the harms that have been done. Um, But I'm not terribly optimistic, at least in this current dispensation, of our political system being able to summon the better angels and summon the political will to actually come up with a solution and deliver it
2: interesting I, i'd be curious to get your reaction to beth who writes i know michael tubbs is well known for his support of universal basic income and had success with a privately funded seed pilot project yet when in stockton one is reminded when seeing so many homeless camps and hearing of weekly shootings that cities led by democrats don't seem to improve overall why hmm. what do you think
3: um I reject the premise of the question, um, the premise of the question. I think, well, first, if you look at when I was mayor of Stockton, we actually reduced homicides and shooting by 40 percent. Um, so just even the even the premise that somehow party affiliation has anything to do
0: mm-hmm.
3: with the ability to govern and make communities safe is, is just false. We know that the issue is poverty. We know that issue is a structural one. And we know that poverty is actually exacerbated and income inequality is actually exacerbated when Republicans are in power, particularly at the federal levels, which has a great impact on economic activity. Um, and, and I would also say that homicides and shootings are a widespread American problem that takes different forms. So in some communities it's gang gun violence, but in some communities it's a epidemic of intimate partner violence. In some communities, it's a, it's an epidemic of sort of mass shootings, and in some communities, it's it, it's it's suicide. So, gun violence is actually a widespread American problem, affecting both Democrats and Republicans. And the only way we solve it is if we actually talk about the problem, which isn't party affiliation. It's the prevalence of guns. It's it's poverty, and it's also gun laws. That frankly, the Republican Party has blocked for the past three decades. The fact that we have so many mass shootings that are seen only in America. You don't see these things in Great Britain. You don't see these things in Australia. You don't see these things in Ghana. You see these only in America. It's a unique part of American life and part of it is actually because of Republican obstructionism at the federal and state levels that proliferates the amounts of, of guns um, that, that we see on our streets. <laughs>
2: What do you think of the, the premise of this question? The listener writes, Michael Tubbs is clearly an exceptional person having managed to get into Stanford and getting elected at such a young age. What is his advice for people who don't have that golden ticket of getting into an elite school or have that same kind of support?
3: Yeah, I, I think sort of, um, there's countless examples of people who are successful who who didn't go to to the Stanford. I'm very blessed. To have not been given a golden ticket but having earned um a, a, a golden ticket to, to stanford but i know some of my most brilliant friends went to community college um sort of the people who raised me who didn't go to college at all so i think part of it is just make yourself avail yourself of all opportunities present and and doing what you can where you are to be excellent and um, because all these spaces are finite um, all these particularly schools have just a a a number of slots they can select but if you look at california our public education infrastructure is second to none. so a uc berkeley a ucla a uc merced a uc davis a csu long beach etc also provides an exceptional opportunity and a great launching pad so i think it's sort of being excellent and positioning yourself to take advantage of opportunity and also creating opportunities where none exists which again is easier said than done which goes back to my previous point uh, we have to talk about structural issues. There, there, there's no reason why someone should have to be lucky enough to get to Stanford to be able to leave their community. It's actually ridiculous, in my opinion.
2: Well, Lori writes, I think Mr. Tubbs was an amazing, innovative mayor who did amazing things for Stockton. I see great things in his future and would encourage him to run for Congress. He would be a great addition and provide new ways of addressing old problems. Go, Michael, one of my heroes. That's from Laurie. Uh, another listener wants to know who inspired you politically, who inspires you politically?
3: Um, well, first of all, thank you um, for for those well wishes. I have no desire to be a congressperson, <laughs> but I appreciate the, the, the sentiment. Why not? You don't
2: um, miss elected office. It didn't sound like that when you said it's been really nice <laughs> not I, having I, to be mayor I, right now. But
3: I don't, but I'm also 31 years old. So I know in the next 40 years, there may be an opportunity to run for <laughs> office again, but I'm not. I'm not ready for office next year, <laughs> like, for example. I'm, I'm really happy where I am. Um, and then what was the second question? I'm sorry. And another
2: person wanted to know who inspires you politically. Oh,
3: it's so funny. But most of my inspirations are not political. <laughs> I mean, Nelson that Mandela, funny. <laughs> I think Nelson Mandela is like the closest mm. to a political figure um, who inspires me. But my biggest inspirations are people like Mary Wright Elderman, the founder of Chelsea Fence Fund, um, my mom, my aunt and grandmother, Ella Baker, Fannie Lou Hamer, um, Stokely Carmichael, John John Lewis as well. Probably John Lewis and Nelson Mandela are the two sort of elected politicians who are inspiring to me. But most of my inspirations have been like organizers, leaders, humanitarian um, people who actually operate outside the political system, which is probably a bit ironic. <laughs>
2: We're talking with Michael Tubbs. Michael Tubbs has written a new memoir called The Deeper the Roots and well known for being the former mayor of Stockton, the youngest and first black mayor of Stockton. He lost his reelection bid in 2020 and has now moved to L.A. and is the father of two. We're reflecting on the things that he learned in his life and what he plans to do now, with this new chapter, 866 is the number to join the conversation. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email us, forum, at kqed.org. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with former Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs about the experiences and the people who've shaped him that he writes about in The Deeper the Roots, a new memoir. And you can join the conversation by calling 866-733-6786, getting in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, emailing us forum at kqed.org. That question from the listener with regard to the golden ticket of Stanford, essentially, one of the things that it reminded me of was that you talk a lot in your memoir about survivor's guilt. And one of the things that you, you talk about was how when you were going off to Stanford, you'd attended this high school, an accelerated academic program, but friends of yours were looking for minimum wage jobs while you were going to start four years at a private university. What is the survivor's guilt there?
3: Yeah, I think the survivor's guilt is sort of recognizing how, even despite how hard I worked and the sacrifices I made and sort of what I quote unquote achieved, just feeling like, wow, I'm am I going to be that much different in, in, than my peers? It, it, do I deserve this? Uh, why me, right? And I think sort of also realizing that being at Stanford was way easier than my friends who had to go straight from high school to a warehouse. Being at Stanford was way easier than my friends who had to go from high school to parenthood. Being at Stanford was way easier than my friends who went from high school to working and going to community college. And really grappling with that, because we all were just a couple years ago, a couple months ago, a couple, um, et cetera. We're all in the same ecosystem. We're all at the same school doing the same things, um, so just it just gnaws at you a little bit, like, wow, like, why me? And and what am I supposed to do with this amazing opportunity?
2: You also bring up Survivor's Gold in relation to your cousin um, who was murdered, who you have talked about being the reason that you went back to Stockton and and ran for political office, or even in relation to your dad and the second chance you feel like you got after your DUI, but not everybody gets those kinds of second chances. Guilt is is associated with something really negative. But can you talk about um, how you have said that survivor's guilt is also part of your fuel?
3: Yeah, I think that the, the, the guilt for me really is sort of part of the insistence that things have to get better and and, and part of sort of I think what animates my work is this idea that I am so lucky to be where I am and because of that luck and that privilege I have to do something with it that's not just for me or not just for me and my family. Um, Drake in his new album he has a line that talks about how for him pain is where he goes to get his lyrics and anxiety is where he goes to get the job done. I think for me, it's sort of pain and anger for the work, but really just a sense of guilt that that provides sort of the drive to to, to get things done. Um, so, not to romanticize the um, survivor's guilt, but it is real. And it's something that I grapple with. I grappled with. I, I live with every day, and I have found ways to be to be productive to make it productive. So it's not just woe is me where it's not just feeling bad, but not doing anything. Where it's like, okay, let's take this emotion and let's put it into action to make it so you don't have to feel guilty because you understand that the, that that there is real opportunity for everybody.
2: Let me go to caller Heather in San Leandro now. Hi, Heather. Hi, um, I just want to thank you for this discussion.
1: And um, I've been a fan of Michael since his mayorship of Stockton. And there were many naysayers, um, but I strongly feel that you gave Stockton a fresh outlook and a realization that there's new and innovative ways of addressing problems in cities that can accomplish the goals, make lives better, make communities better. I really feel like you gave it just, just Stockton a breath of fresh air. And I wanted to also add that you and your wife make a wonderful power couple. Um, I want to mention her book that came out uh, this year. Um, so she does great work, too.
2: Uh, Heather, thanks. Actually, your your wife's book... I felt echoes of that when you were describing the three the three women in your life who created that sort of wall of love and protection, Michael Tubbs. I don't know if you want to just talk briefly about it.
3: Yeah, my wife's book, which actually comes out in paperback on December 28th, is called The Three Mothers. And it's about the mothers of Dr. King, James Baldwin, and Malcolm X. But it's also about interrogating why, as we law these great men, no one has really interrogated who were their mothers, who raised them, who helped them become who they are. And in her examination of that, we find out that so much of them makes sense because of the woman who raised them. And it's also a commentary on sort of erasure, the commentary of the work of mothering and a commentary that may be a, a, a key to sort of a more prosperous future in America is to do policymaking with the lens of what will make mother's jobs easier. Um, so it's a phenomenal book. Um, not just because she's my wife, but it literally is a phenomenal book. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. She's actually giving a TED woman talk on the book in a couple weeks in December. Um, so, "The Three Mothers" uh, by Anna Malika Tubbs. is an amazing book.
2: What did your your three mothers your three mothers <laughs> um, say after you lost your reelection bid for mayor? You described that time as being and feeling angry, confused, even embarrassed.
3: They were, like, uh, uh, upset because they saw just how hard the work was and they saw, like, the sacrifices and all that. But, I mean, my mom never wanted me to come back to Stockton. Right. So she is thrilled. <laughs> she is so happy. <laughs> and she's like, good. They don't deserve you. Good. Like, she's just really happy. Um, and my aunt and my grandmother are as well because they always felt Like, none of them wanted me to come back. None of them Mm -hmm. were like, you need to come back. All of them were like, okay. So they were actually excited for this last election because if I had won, it would have been my last four years as mayor anyway. So they were like, well, this is the last time you're here. They have to do something else. We want you to move on. Um, But I I think they also were so incredibly proud of sort of the young man they raised who had been in office in eight years and had sort of helped turn some things around. And I think now they kind of miss being um, concerned with local politics, and they miss sort of having the inside track to to what was the discussion that led to the decision. Um, but they are so happy, and I think they were more sad that I was hurt. It was like that maternal instinct, like "Oh my baby," like "Oh he's 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 not." But they weren't. They were like, "Oh this is great." <laughs> they were they were using, they were they were sad that I was sad, but. Other than that, they've been like, what's next? This is exciting. What's new? Let's get out of here. Um, give us somewhere to visit. So, so they're in a good place.
2: I was struck by the word embarrassed, which I think is just a hard word to write, like to share that you felt embarrassed by the loss. Do you still feel that way? Or do you feel like this time of reflecting on it, you fully understand it now? Or does that not you still?
3: Uh, I this going to sound flippant saying it, but I it's really true, I'm, I'm more embarrassed for the city at, at this point <laughs> than, 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 than for myself. Um, and I say that because all the things that the disinformation machine used as reasons why I was bad, now you have the entire nation doing them. <laughs> now you have sort of working with 60 mayor's across the country on guaranteed income, um, working with the Biden administration on programs like advanced peace to reduce gun violence, who who they who put six billion dollars in the federal budget for gun violence intervention programs like the one we were demonized for in Stockton, We're advising the governor on economic mobility and opportunity, where communities are looking at what we did in Stockton from sort of service alignment to sort of community organizing around green jobs and saying, we want to do that here. So now my embarrassment really extends sort of to to to, to the city. But when I lost, I was personally embarrassed because so much of my identity was tied into Stockton. And and so much of who I was and what I talked about was tied into Stockton. And I think it's always it's like being scorned, right? Like when you love something and you love or love someone and you're rejected, that's embarrassing. (laughs) It's like, oh, my God, because I I cared. If I didn't care, it would be one thing, but I deeply cared. And I think that's where the embarrassment came from.
2: Well, this listener tweets, Mayor Tubbs would do much good if he spoke at juvenile halls. Many of the kids have no hope and desire to do better because they don't know anyone who struggled and succeeded. Their role models are still on the streets, dead or incarcerated. You did focus a lot on talking with young people. I don't know. Feel free to respond to this listener's comment, but also just curious about. That that felt like, as you talked about it in your book, something that you were really passionate about. And I don't know if that's informing some of the next steps that you want to take in your life.
3: Yeah, I spent actually an incredible amount of time while city council while mayor, um, going to juvenile halls, going to the youth prison facility in Stockton, um, going to prisons and jails across the country, across the state, talking to people. I just didn't talk. I didn't tweet about it much because you can't really have phones in there. But I spent a lot of time doing that. And in doing that, I recognized that sort of part of the issue wasn't that people didn't have hope or people didn't have role models. A lot of the issues, a lot of the kids had no opportunity. There, there, Hope hope for what? When you have your guards telling you you're nothing, when you get released into the community, you can't find jobs, when you're going back to broken communities with nothing for you, like what, what's there to be hopeful for? And I think That's sort of what my work and what this book is about. It's about let's make hope real. It's called A Memoir of Hope and Home, but we spend a lot of time talking about what is real hope. Hope is not some hokey thing. It's not magical thinking. It's not Napoleon Hill. It has to be real and tangible. And hope is real opportunity. And I think for a lot of people in our prison system, just from spending, again, a lot of time there myself, the issue isn't a lack of hope. It's a lack of opportunity. It's a lack of a second chance. It's a lack of sort of the coaching and mentorship needed to become productive citizens.
2: I want to, there's one thing that we haven't gotten to that I really wanted to talk about, which is your time in school and the love-hate relationship you had with it. Love because you love the environment, the learning, everything that you were absorbing and t- taking in and how it was making your world better, but hate because of the way that you were treated by some of your teachers, even at the point where you you sued a high school teacher for for racism and discrimination. Can you talk about that time and how you were able to deal with those microaggressions and not so micro too?
3: Yeah, high school was a really, well, education in general um, was incredibly paradoxical because I was always a great student, but very rarely would get get along with my teachers. and, And part of it was me um but part of it was also sort of either bias and in some cases it's very flagrant racism for for, for, for from my teacher so I remember going to the classroom and having to prepare myself like I was going into battle like having to sort of be prepared to listen and, and not just learn but to defend my grade I talk about in the books how I had to regrade almost every paper I turned in to get the grade I deserved because you can talk about special-
2: what regrading means how you yeah, would do like- that
3: so in subjective classes like English or history, um, I would look at the rubric. I would look at what my friends got on their papers and look at what I got on mine and have the teacher illustrate to me where, how was this paper more aligned with the rubric than, than than mine? And and I would always find discrepancies. just little points here or there, knocking from A to a B, et cetera. And I, the teachers would get annoyed with me because I would come up and sit down they'd have to explain to me how they graded, ex- even to the point where one teacher got tired of changing my grades. So he told the class, he announced it, that if anyone let me see their work, he would just automatically make their grade lower like like that. And that's the type of stuff I had to deal with in high school. But I think it made me a fighter. It it made me an organizer and it really um, tested my focus and my resolve that nothing was going to stand in my way of sort of getting out and, 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 and putting my best foot forward and having sort of opportunities real. And actually, it was all the negative experiences I had in high school from being kicked out every single day um, from from teachers telling me, oh, you're you'll give things just because you're black. Um, <laughs> on, the, on the flip side, penalizing my work also just because I was black. Um, That made me become a teacher. And that's why my first job after college was teaching and sort of reversing some of the experiences I had so that my students felt welcome. So they felt challenged. So they felt that there was a caring adult who believed in them and saw their potential. So I, um, it was actually painful to go back and write about, and I actually marvel at how at 15, 16 years old, I had the resolve, I had um, the determination to not even let the authority figure stop what I thought was, was my next step. And I am driven to make sure no other kid has to do that. But that kid going to schools where they're treated as a person of limitless, limitless potential as they are. And they don't have to deal with isms and bias and things as they're trying to learn calculus and arithmetic and trying to grow up and become an adult, which is hard in and of itself anyway.
2: I'm talking to former Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs and you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Yes. All of that. And also the emotional turmoil you talked about how on the surface, your MO was basically nonchalance, but underneath you were smoldering. That's a lot to manage as a kid
3: it's mm. a lot to manage i think that makes sense why so many kids give up so many kids don't try so many kids are like what's the point um and yeah and i think part of the work now is really focused and part of who i wrote this book for were for kids like that to know that yes your anger is justifiable but let's figure out how do we channel your anger into something because we don't want that anger to consume you We we don't want that anger turned inward. We don't want that anger to turn to nihilism. But you should be angry at injustice. You should be angry at disparate treatment. Let's figure out how to channel that so that the world can see sort of how much you have to offer and how much we need you.
2: So now... You have accepted an unpaid advisory role with with Governor Newsom, co- coordinating economic mobility and opportunity in the state of California. Can you talk a little bit more about what you want to accomplish with that and what you're um, working I, on now?
3: Yeah, I really want to support the governor and his team and the legislature on how do you make the Golden State Golden for All. We know that California is a great state. It's a progressive state, but we also have the highest poverty rate in the nation. Um, because of housing costs, because of cost of living, because of wages, et cetera. And my job is to really help us think through sort of what can we do with the levers we had to make opportunity real for, for everyone in California. So starting an effort called End Poverty in California, um, really focused on sort of how do we align philanthropy, civil society, government, community members, and everyone, the entertainment industry, and everyone in California. Around this North Star goal of let's eliminate poverty in our state. Let's show the nation what can be done. Let's show how an investment in people is actually the superior growth strategy. Um, and then, and thinking the last budget, spent a lot of time thinking through ARP funds with the team. And you saw like two billion dollars in child savings accounts. You saw the thirty-five million dollars in guaranteed income programs. You saw the thirty-five million. I mean, yeah, thirty-five million dollars in guaranteed income programs. The Golden State stimulus checks, I went to 70% of Californians. So really thinking about sort of how do we make the, the Golden State golden for everyone? Um, and it's, uh, it's been an honor to work with Governor Newsom and his team. I remember after my election, he was the first person <laughs> to text and call and say, what are you up to next? I would love to find a way to have what you're doing in stock to be elevated at the state level. Would you please join the team? And I've enjoyed learning from him and seeing the way he's led, despite crazy opposition, but really focused on keeping California safe and healthy and, 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 and golden.
2: Well, Michael Tubbs, it's been a pleasure to catch up with you.
3: <laughs> Thank you. It's like therapy. I appreciate it.
2: <laughs> I'm glad. Michael Tubbs, the new book is The Deeper the Roots, a reflection of the people and the stories and experiences that shaped him. Also, as we discussed earlier, the jury has found Kyle Rittenhouse not guilty on all counts. In the shooting of three men, two fatally in August of 2020, we'll be covering this story throughout the day. So stay with this station. And Forum is produced by Judy Campbell, Tina Lauerberg, Ariana Prell, Blanca Torres, and Grace One, who produced today's segment. Susan Britton is the lead producer for the 10 o'clock hour. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin. Our interns are Kimia Akbari and Jennifer Ng. Our executive editor is Ethan tobin Lindsay And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Mina Kim. Hope you have a good weekend.